First, we'd like to thank everybody for coming. We have this class every week. So I don't want to go through this every single week to stay out of turnout. So you're all invited. Join us on an occasional basis. Robert Kassel gives a class tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. Everybody's invited to this class as well. So we'd love to have you. We'd love to see you under um, certainly better circumstances. But it's certainly a um, wonderful pleasure to welcome you to our Bet Knesset. Thank you, Isaac. Good. Thank you. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. Into our Bet Knesset. And uh, hopefully the mitzvah, Talmud Torah, the learning itself, will serve as zechut for anybody that's ill, Chol Amo Yisrael, everybody, anybody that's ill in any which way, should hopefully have it for Asher with the zechut of the learning that we're having this evening. Over the past few weeks, with the exception of the Hadith Hanukkah, we've been studying the book of Bereshit. And of course, it's most appropriate at this point in time, since now we are completing, ending, the book of Bereshit, that we should review and deepen our understanding as to the teachings of this, the first of the five books of Torah Moshe. Remember that this first opening work of the Creator about His creation, to His creation, has much to teach us. So let me begin by asking you the question, what would you expect to find in this book of Bereshit? Imagine that all of a sudden you found this book in the middle of a desert, and you see that the instructions of this book are read it, enjoy it, grow from it, learn from it. This is the book of the Creator to His creation. What would you expect to find in this book? <clears throat> Use your imagination. Twilight Zone, Out of Limits, whatever you like. What would you expect to find in the book? <clears throat> Sorry? Okay, a how-to book. But, okay, good. How to what? How to live, how to use it, good. What else? Why, why you should use this book? Welcome, Brooklyn. Pleasure to have you. I'm sorry to inconvenience you this way, but thank you for coming. Yeah, sorry? Okay, to exceed all areas. So implied in all of these points is that there should be over here, one would expect to find a noble vision the plan of the Creator for His creation. We'd expect to find the purpose of creation and how we can ultimately fulfill that particular purpose. So we raise the question, do we in fact find this purpose? Do we in fact find this noble vision of what the Creator wants from us? And we have to analyze and see if in fact Sefer Bereshit meets up with our expectations. And if it does, fine. If it doesn't, then I want to leave you with a question as to why not. If in fact you find that Sefer Bereshit does not really give you that very clear formula as to how to live life, what the purpose of creation is, how to find success, how to do it right, then we have to ask the question, why not? So now let's look at the opening verse of the book of Bereshit. And here, the opening words tell us, Bereshit bara'arim t'shamay v'ta'aretz. Roughly translated, in the beginning of creation, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Those are the opening words of Bereshit. 
So what really does this statement imply? The statement implies that there is a creator and he has a certain relationship to his creation. What is that relationship? He is the creator. Here we are introduced to the creator as the creator. What does that imply? It implies that the creator is master, sovereign over his creation. Here we see that there's a natural order. We experience a natural order on a daily basis. And yet, we note that since the Creator created the natural order, then that Creator is not part of the natural order, but rather the author of the natural order. God is above and beyond, what Olam Hashem is, above and beyond the natural order. Now, one sometimes understands an idea more deeply by contrast. Now, when we think of the Torah, in the society in which it was given, that is, 3,000 years ago, 1,200 before the common era, into the pagan society of Ovdi Abu Dazara, there we find that the pagans believed that the gods in whom they believed were coexistent with the natural order, in fact were produced by the natural order, and therefore they were subservient to nature. By extreme contrast, this revolutionary doctrine here to Torah says to us that no, Bore Olam is the creator of the natural order. To us, it seems obvious. To them, it was a revolutionary doctrine hardly believable. In fact, it was so revolutionary that even the Israelites at that period of time couldn't really believe it. And we find that it took hundreds and hundreds of years for the Jews to fully absorb and integrate this particular notion. Because they were raised in a pagan society, they were paganized by their surroundings, and how often the prophets went to the Israelites throughout the hundreds of years subsequent to the Torah itself, begging, pleading, exhorting, and saying to them, don't you get it yet? Borei Olam is the creator, and not to be associated with creation, but rather he was created and is sovereign and master of the creation itself. So this is the opening idea and the first pillar of what Torah is all about. The sovereign of the created natural order can do as he pleases with creation. Good. Elohim precedes creation and rules over the systematic development of that created world. And throughout Bereshit, we see the emergence of a plan, of a process, from what to what? From what to what? From chaos to order. Whereas the beginning of the created world, there was chaos, and now we find, through a systematic development of seven stages of creation, we find that there is an orderly development from one stage to the other. If you will, one might use this term evolution. Bore Olam evolves the universe from chaos to order, to more order, to more order, to most order. Good. How does Bore Olam do this? In the opening statements, we see that it's the Word of God, an effortless act of creation. What is the key word in all of this? Key word? Vayomer. 
And God pronounced there should be light and there was light. Throughout all of the development of this chapter of Bereshit, it's Vayomer. How does the, word, the book of Tehillim actually express this? With the word of God. There's no physical energy expended. Rather, it's the word of God. The commandment goes forth and it is. So therefore, the first opening concept that a Jewish person wants to know about is that Borei Olam is the master, sovereign, developer, creator, author of the natural order. This is all obvious. This we all know. The second revolutionary concept that is in the book of Bereshit, of course, as you well know, we've been teaching it for 28 years now, is that Elohim decides to create a man, mankind. And this creation of mankind is essentially different than all that preceded him. How does the biblical record teach us that mankind is so very different? Number one, there's forethought. Before Borei Olam creates mankind, there is a verse, Pasuk 26, Let us, future tense, in all of the prior steps of the orderly development of the natural order, it was God said and it was. Immediately. Here, in Pasuk 26, Kavav, of Perik Av Bereshit, there is forethought which presents itself before the creation of Adam. Let us in the future. And the next verse, of course, carries out that pronouncement. But also in Pasuk Kavav, you have the Nun. The Nun is plural. Let us make man. So, of course, many of the biblical commentaries have raised the question repeatedly. Why is there a plural verb over here? Na'ase Adam. What's the answer? Many. Many answers have been given. The Midrash wants to say that it's Shamayim Va'aretz. Man is made of the heavens and the earth, the spiritual and the physical. And Sa'ajiga On gives a wonderful answer by saying that this is known as the royal we. The royal we used in the plural... And it gives this next creation of Borei Olam a certain dignity and status. So the very use of the nun, of plurality, which is not used ever before, gives Adam a certain dignity and status. And of course, the very fact that the next verse says, let us create man in our image. And the image, of course, is not a physical image, as the Rambam in Morena Bukhim, part 1, chapter 1, emphasizes. But rather, it's a statement of the value. The value of the human being is to be viewed as infinite. As the image of God is infinite, so too is the value infinite. That is, you are to view each human being as infinitely valuable and precious to the creator of all. Each human being, teaches us that a human being is to be viewed as unique and equal to each other. No two human beings are alike, Sanhedrin teaches us, the Mishnah Sanhedrin. We're all different. And therefore, all of us are equally, infinitely valuable and precious in our uniqueness. Such was the will of the Creator. Good. So, the implication of Selim Elohim 
is that we are granted intrinsically with a certain dignity. Dignity not because we're great producers, not because we know how to shoot a basketball, not because we're good-looking or wealthy, or all of the above. Rather, the very fact that we are created as Selim Elohim, as images in the, created by Bore Olam, therefore the Creator has endowed us with an intrinsic dignity. Now that has implications. And here's we get into the purpose and the statement as to what we're all about. Since the human being has been created apart, very separate from the animal kingdom, he therefore has certain obligations. Obligations initially to the Creator, but equally so obligations to each other. And the model of how we treat each other is modeled along the concept of Salem Lokim. So you have to raise the question. If you were to know, if you knew that the sovereign Creator has granted infinite dignity to another person, how would you treat that person? Isaac. Good. With infinite dignity. You would therefore not do what? Shame. You wouldn't shame. You wouldn't uh, be bad to him. You wouldn't beat up on him. You wouldn't hurt him. Good. Exactly. All the law ta'as says a part of this plan of creation. Do not shame. Do not condemn. Do not in any which way trivialize the Salem Elohim. Mankind has experienced a history ongoingly of what one human being has done to shame and beat up on and trivialize, trample other people. So the vision of Borea Olam over here is that we should treat each other as Salem Elohim. Those two words are the most powerful words in all of Tanakh and they've been repeatedly violated on an ongoing basis, daily basis, throughout human history. Strikingly so. We have not gotten the essential core message of what Seder Melochim means. One of the great modern Jewish philosophers, Martin Buber, expressed this concept in a very profound, catchy way that will help us understand what Salem Elohim really means. He expresses that we could treat each other either as what he calls an it. Or we could treat each other what he calls as a thou. As a person that has that dignity. Now, I want you to tell me in which context is it that I see you as an it and not a thou? What would you think an it is all about? When am I treating people as its as opposed to thous? Sorry, when? Okay, good. If I only see you as a mass as opposed to that unique individual, then you're an it. An it part of the massive crowd. Good. What else? Sorry? Meaning what? Good, excellent. If you are a tool of mine, if you provide me with any of my needs, then you're an it. So, if you are the grocer, the butcher, the egg maker, the launderer, 
then I need you to provide me with a service. And therefore you aren't it. Yes, sorry? Correct. Only in it. Yes, correct. You're only in it. If you don't make as much money as me, you might be in it. And I see you functionally. Only as a function. Karen? Stereotypes are it's. Broadly based it's. Correct. Now on the other hand, yeah? Absolutely. That's certainly all the more so of an it. Good. So now how would you, Florence, see a thou? Somebody that you respect, that, that's on such a high level. Not higher than the, you necessarily. Or as Buba puts it, it's when you see a person in all of their deep humanity. See them as a creation of God. See them as a human being. Fullest. You're not there to simply serve my needs, to provide me with an income, or anything that I need, but to simply see them, and simple, fully as a human being. And he says, interestingly, that when you see a person as a human being, and tell me if you have experienced this, time is of no consequence. Anybody ever go on a date? <laughs> Never. Never? You should. Why is a good guy to go date with? I went on a date, happens to be, not with a opposite sex, but rather with one of my closest friends, with Sam Sutter, who it turns out to be. And it was an amazing experience where the five hours we spent together was five minutes. Because time becomes irrelevant when you're experiencing the full humanity of that other person. Time just goes by. So maybe in your cases, you went out with the person that you love so much, and the, the minutes becomes the hours, and all of a sudden it's morning. Time is of no consequence. And there's such a pure feeling between those two I-thou's that nothing is requested. You don't need anything. Nothing is offered. You don't ask for everything. It's pure relationship. And Martin Buber ends his very first chapter or part of this work saying, truth of the matter is, we cannot all live in the world of I-thou. Nothing would get done. And he says that one must live with I it relationships, but if one only lives with I it relationships, then he has not lived. If you've never experienced the humanity, the Tzedem Elohim, if you will, nature of the person, relating them purely as a creation of God, requesting, demanding nothing. I don't need anything from you. I just want to be with you. It's a simple issue of being together of one person with the other person, being this together, experiencing the humanity of that person, that's what an I-thou relationship is. So therefore, Martin Buber was able to capture in the 20th century what this concept of Sinlochim is really all about. One cannot exclusively live with I-thou relationships. We need things from others. But one who only lives with I-it has not lived. Good. Now, Again, by contrast, by contrast, how did the pagan world in which the Torah was given see the other person? In the creation epics of the of the Avodah of the pagans, we are told that the gods got together to create a man, a human being, to serve their needs. They needed, after all, a physical temple. 
They needed, the gods needed food because those gods were created in the image of mankind. The people, the Ovdeh Vrazara, Rambam, in the beginning of the Chutah Vrazara, talks about how idolatry began. And we learn, we know, that these people created the gods in their image. So therefore, therefore, in the same way that these people needed shelter and food, so they pretend, they thought the gods must also need shelter and food. And they, they, they saw the gods in their primitive thinking that the gods created mankind to serve their needs. To build them temples so they don't get cold and subject to the elements and to provide them with food. Of course, Abraham came along and smashed all those idols as an iconoclast, smashed all those idols, and he wants to create a new idea. We'll come back to that new idea in a few moments. But the pagan therefore saw mankind as a tool only. And they measured a man in terms of, and a woman in terms of, property, economic worth. Now I find that so interesting. Whereas for Torah, the human being is incommensurate with property, no matter how much money or property you give me, I would not give you another human being, ever. Not my children, nor would any of you, for a million, million dollars. You wouldn't give me one of your children, hopefully not. Unless you have, you know, crybaby like I had. Different story. But otherwise, the Torah sees the human being as incommensurate with property. You cannot compare the two. Your being is absolutely infinitely precious. Property is only property. The pagan of Devdazara saw the human being in terms of what he was worth to each other. In exchange, human being is a movable commodity. Especially women were viewed as commodities, properties. You bought, you sold them. So diametrically opposed to what Torah is all about. Interesting because our modern society bases its pay scale based on your financial assets, what you bring to the job. If you bring, if you're a salesman, you bring $100,000 a year, I'll pay you $200,000 a year. So it's your economic worth that is valued in society. If you have 10 jump shots in a row, you're worth $10 million. We pay people by virtue of their worth. It's diametrically opposed to what Torah sees as every person as infinitely precious, infinitely valuable. And interestingly, in the pagan world, if you took a life, then you paid for it. You simply paid the value of that life. If it was a slave, $4. Oh, you struck a nobleman, $40. To the life of somebody who was a king or queen, it's a thousand pieces of gold. How dare you? It was all commensurate. Now, by contrast, in Torah, if I took a life, could I pay my way out of it? No, you cannot. There's nothing you give anybody that's going to be equivalent of a human life. No matter how much money, how much property, we paradoxically say, the only thing you can give me if you took a life is your life. And of course, the rabbis of the Talmud in Makot and Sanhedrin and other places understood that idea profoundly and yet created a set of circumstances, a famous argument in the Mishnah itself as to whether or not the rabbis really believed in capital punishment. Different opinions in the Mishnah itself. Ultimately, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tafon say we would never submit somebody to capital punishment who will take another human life. 
And then, Abba Gamaliel says, what do you mean? It serves as a deterrent. So that's an interesting social argument. And the answer is, if in fact it serves as a deterrent, then in fact you must engage in it. If it would not, then you do not. And that's an argument that sociologists still have regarding the issue. But in the pagan world, if in fact you took a life, you paid with property. By contrast, Torah would never accept that. Now, let's say I stole from you. In the pagan law codes, the Assyrian and Hittite law codes, you therefore were guilty of a capital crime because you stole my money. So you pay with your life. And in the, interestingly, in the Assyrian law code, they have a specific case of the theft of a wife from a husband. That's terrible. Capital punishment. So women, beware. If you live by the Assyrian law code, it's trouble. We would never say that. We would never say that if a person damages your property, you take his life. Because that's incommensurate. No matter what I did, if I burnt your house down, whatever I did, took away all your valuables, all your properties, everything, 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 I never would pay with my life for what I have done to you. Because property can never be commensurate equal to a human life. So Torah over here is diametrically opposed to the notion in the pagan world into which Torah was given, this is a revolutionary doc doctrine, that life and property can ever be equal. Good. Interesting is that when we go further, we find Torah deals with what takes place when that rarefied concept of Selim Elohim is debased. Because all that we've said so far is wonderful and it's a noble vision of what Torah is really all about. Wonderful vision. But we raise the question, Torah wants a human being to be fully Selimized. To be a full human being and appreci appreciate the full humanity of the other. Good. That's what Torah wants of the human being. And we'll see in a few moments how that is to be brought into existence. But we have to raise the question that though God creates Adam, mankind, and Salem Elohim, and therefore what flows from that concept, as pointed out before, is that we treat each other in a certain fashion. What two words that you all know epitomize, in a nutshell, what that's all about. Sorry? Exactly, very good. Louder? Tzedakah mishpat. We must treat each other with rules of justice and rules of compassion. Good. And then the narratives of the book of Bereshit teach us all about the human being Though created in a divine image, and therefore one would expect human being to follow along this wonderful pathway of Siddhakar Mishpat, we find that in fact, from the very beginning, mankind has a certain inclination, which is to violate that very essential principle that it was created with. The human being is not given to obeying God's law of Salem Elohim, nor in fact of obeying and seeing each other as Salem Elohim. So now, what would be the ultimate violation of Salem Elohim? God says, for example, in Garden of Eden, do not touch, do not eat 
do not eat from that tree. Mankind eats and violates and bears the consequences. Now, what would be the greatest violation of another human being, Selim If I take his life, I take away Selim And what narrative expresses that in the very opening chapters of Bereshit? Kaid in heaven. Exactly. So, Torah is so real in telling us that even though the opening two chapters describe the human being as it commensurate with property, as this rarefied vision of Selim humanity, full, chapter 3 tells about the violation of God's commandment, chapter 4 tells us about man committing that arch transgression, this great sin which can never be paid back. You cannot return that person back to life. No matter what you do, you cannot bring that person back. And therefore, you've created a situation where a human being has been lost and you cannot bring that person back. Violation of what God wants of us. So Kain and Hevel teaches us the extent to which a human being is capable of acting. Killing another human being. Perek Vav, I find and found, we studied to be of great interest, because here we have another violation of human being, and here's the violation of the woman. And again, it's a radical statement here, where Perek Vav teaches us that the woman is to be viewed as the equal of man. God created man and woman as both Selim and therefore both are of equal status in God's eyes and in our eyes. And all of a sudden, in chapter 6, in Pasuk, Aleph and Bet, verses 1 and 2, we find that mankind has multiplied, and then man of great power, B'nai Elohim, the word Elohim, Rooted in Aleph, Lamed, Mem, means power. So now these men of great power grabbed and took women. They took any woman they wanted to. Violating what? Their right, the woman's right, to accept or reject the offer. And, here Torah tells us, key word in that pasuk is, ki tovot. Why is the key word? Because these men, of power, grabbed these women because they were tovot. Which means they were physically attractive, they wanted these women, they just grabbed them. Why is that word so critical? Because here, this word tov appears repeatedly in the opening chapter of Bereshit. God said this is all a wonderful world, the tov world. These people have violated turned upside down, if you will, that word tov. Whereas God pronounced it as wonderfully in tov, they said, we'll take that tov and pervert it. And turn, turn it upside down. And therefore, when they said, took any woman they chose, violent sin of status of that woman, therefore the very next pasuk says, Elohim says, I, which values the Tzernalukim element and aspect of mankind, man is only concerned about the physical, and therefore I'll set a termination as to their life. And as a result of this transgression, we read about the Mabul. The Mabul teaches us over here that massive evil, this kind of massive evil could involve, involve 
in Thai society civilization, you can have all Sanamalokims engage in total evil. One might have thought that evil might have been simply an isolated phenomenon. No! Mabul teaches us, an entire society, and again we've experienced this throughout history, can engage in total evil. And therefore, the consequences are clear. When society engages in total evil, then there must be a mass destruction in order to begin again. Sin brings in its wake massive punishment. So you raise the question, is there any hope for mankind? After reading all about the Mabul, one would have thought there is no hope. When an entire society becomes a fulfillment of anti Salem Elohim people, the Mabul is such, there's no hope, because had there been hope, God would not have destroyed, there is no hope, so therefore perhaps there's no hope. The answer is there is hope. Why is there hope? Because Noah. Noah, because Noah comes along. But then we see that even with Noah, there's a falling from grace. So the real question is, how do we optimistically view human history? Why is there hope for the future? The answer is, of course, Abraham. Abraham is a person who embodies the principles of Siddhakar Mishpat, a very famous verse, chapter 18, verse 19. Abraham is this man who is so optimistic that, fill in the blank, that Abraham believes in the humanity and goodness of people so much so that even Sodom and Amorat can change. Boreolam says, no, 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 they cannot change. Sodom and Amorat are a microcosm of the Mabul generation. Mabul cannot change, they must be punished. Sodom and Amorat cannot change, completely destroyed. But Abraham says, no, God. Really? It's all about education. Give me an opportunity and I will change. I need a small amount of people. 50 people, I'll change the entire city. 40 people, 30 people, 20 people, 10 people. At that point, Abraham says, I understand. There is a point beyond which a person cannot change. A person can become demonically evil. And again, we've seen throughout our history so many of these people as demonic, as evil beyond words. We'd seen it in our own generation, generation before ours, the Holocaust, demonic evil. Evil writ large, hard to believe the evil perpetrated by the Nazis. And we discuss it during Yom HaShoah. We understand evil. Human being can become demonic. Hitler, Eichmann, but not only limited to that, go throughout the history of the Torquemadas, Haman, all of them, repeatedly, evil writ large. So Abraham is denied. Yes, Abraham has to realize there is a bottom line, there is a point beyond which a human being can go and therefore there is just no hope. Still, the idea of Abraham that a human being can change and become a better person is very significant. Because that gives us hope that no matter who it is, that person can change. So let's see. 
above and beyond the two pillars of Bereshit, which is the concept of Bore Olam, of God as sovereign over the universe, and above and beyond the concept of God creating a human being in Salem Elohim, infinitely precious, to be treated as a thou, and above and beyond the notion of the potential of the human being to degrade that image that God has granted him, as the Mabut Stova Amurat teach us, still in all, there is hope. Now, if I ask you, why is there hope? Will you tell me because human beings will change their essential nature? No. But she teaches us that mankind has an inclination towards Ra. He desires, he wants, he's rapacious. We've seen it repeatedly throughout human history. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Correct. That's the nature. But, what Abraham discovers is that goodness and Salem Elohimness is in fact teachable. That's the key. That if we are good parents, if we are good teachers, and every teacher has to be, should be a good parent, and every parent has to be a good teacher, then we realize that Abraham who embodied the two critical values of Torah, justice and righteousness, that that is teachable. Because what's that famous verse that you all know about? Kedatib. God says, I have been intimate with this man Abraham. Asher Yitzaveh. He will command his children, biologically, and his household. They will safeguard God's way, which is what? To do justice and righteousness. So Abraham is that person who taught us that goodness is teachable. Now it's interesting, because I'll ask you the question, where did Abraham get this idea from? That to the Kamishpat is the right Derech Hashem. Notice the words. So the Kamishpat is Derech Hashem. That's the pathway of God. Justice and righteousness. Being a good person, compassionate, kind, but also having a measure for measure, just system and society. So where did Abraham get this from? Certainly not, you tell me, from his pagan environment. No. From a master, mentor, or teacher? No. So where do you think Abraham got this from? Why did Abraham discover this notion. Question, did God tell him? Do you have any pasuk that Hashem says to Abraham, I want you to fast the Kamishpat? No. So where did Abraham get it from? Again, no. The pasuk says, in this very powerful context, right before Sodom Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, right before that context, Hashem says to himself, ani Abraham et asher ani oseh. Shall I hide from Abraham, that which I'm going to do. Abraham going to He's going to be a great nation. People are going to learn from this man Abraham. So I can't hide from him. He has to know that if people transgress en masse, they're going to be punished en masse. Have to be punished. Consequences to your action. So, in that context, Bode Olam says, the very next verse, Ki da'ativ asher harav, I know this man Abraham. He commands people the right way. Teaches them what's right. His children, yes, and others follow as well. They will follow the pathway of God, which is just much. Where did he get it from? 
Where did Abraham? God says, I found the man. He's the man who's going to found this great nation. But where did he get it from is my question. Welcome. Baruch Thank you for coming. Where did Abraham learn this from? Sorry? From his inner nature. Human reason. Many of the commentaries explain to us that Selim Lokim really is the power of the human being to discern right from wrong. So Abraham was this person who thought through well what nature is all about, what the soul is all about, and because he had thought through well this whole issue, we find that Borei Olam says, Lech Lecha to Abraham, you are the man who is going to establish a people. Fascinating is that prior to the words Lech Lecha, Borei Olam does not say anything to Abraham. Nothing. Abraham discovers all on his own. So it's within the Tzedem Elohim, within the human being himself, you find the sources of goodness. So that's deeply embedded within us. Within us, Abraham discovers goodness on his own. He discovers how false paganism is. And therefore, Abraham early on discovers, and the Midrash tells us this very clearly, that Abraham asked the right questions about God. Could it be a pagan deity? My father made it yesterday, and today he's bowing down to it. Makes no sense. Illogical. Smashes it. And he smashes all of those humanly created deities till he comes to the concept Boresh Amayim Va'aretz. And he asks himself the question. He's a good philosopher. That's all a good philosopher. He the question. What does God want of me? What does God want of all of us? So he couldn't want evil if he created all of this. There's a harmony within the natural order. There should be a harmony within the natural social order as well. And when one man's killing another man, that's not a natural harmony. So the very orderliness that we spoke about in the beginning of Bereshit contains the very notion of Siddhakamish The orderliness of nature served as a model for the orderliness of human society. And men stealing or raping, Perekvav, all of that, and Kainavil was a disharmony. And Abraham said, couldn't be that the orderly nature, and Borei Olam, who created the orderly nature, would want a disorderly society. And therefore society has to be orderly. What's orderly mean? Justice, Shabbat. Yet, above and beyond justice, is compassion and kindness when that's warranted. So Siddhakam Shabbat were the two core values that a Jew has to have, that the world will ultimately have, that Abraham came along and taught. These are values that are teachable to all. Good. Abraham understood the values, discovered the values, never told these values by Borei Olam, taught Banabdu Harav, and therefore there is hope for mankind. Two more points. What we find of great interest that these are core values that we have to have. Because what's the end of that pasuk in Bereshit Yud Hayt Yutet? The man havi al Avraham et asher diber alav. What does that mean? Shamru derech Hashem. Abraham is going to teach everybody. They're all going to follow the pathway of justice and righteousness. But the last words of that pasuk are very significant. Leman havi. What does that mean? In order for God to ultimately bring upon Abraham all that He promised him, it's all based on a condition. What's the condition? 
they follow tzedakah umishpat. That if a person deselamizes within society, within any context, and violates the principles of tzedakah umishpat, then he will no longer be part of that promised nation. So therefore, for the Jewish people as a whole, to be the chosen people, we have to do to the Kavishpat. Leman Abi Abraham, for God to bring upon Abraham that which he promised him, you must engage in justice and righteousness. Good. What's the last lesson that we learn from the book of Bereshit? Despite the goodness of Abraham and the teachability of the values of justice and righteousness, which gives us rise which gives rise to the optimism that we should feel and experience in God's world, still, much of Bereshit teaches us that even within the family of Abraham, things can go wrong. It's not a guaranteed system. Basic to this entire discussion, as Bereshit teaches us, is that a human being has free will. A person has the right to choose his pathway in life. And based on this choice, the person is either selected to be part of God's chosen nation or not. And what would be the criteria of that choice? If a person falls to the Karmishpat, he's in. He denies justice and or righteousness, he's out. So the Karmishpat is the criteria for chosenness. Those who engage in it are chosen, not because they are biologically the children of Abraham, they're not automatically chosen. You could be automatically Jewish, doesn't mean you're necessarily chosen, because you could be biologically Jewish, but lose that, what we call Kiddushat Israel. you could lose that if you engage in acts that are horrifically evil. Now it's true, we have the Gemara Basak Sanhedrin, which says, It's true, no matter what a Jew does, there's always hope. But, we also learn, based on the Gemara, that if a person engages in evil, and they become assimilated, and they become paganized, and they become so alien from the Jewish people, such that, and I've taught this before, such that the grandfather does not recognize the grandson, because he's not any longer part of that Israelite nation, then that person has lost Kiddushat Israel. Is that point clear? Yehoshea, in Gemara Yivamot Yudzayin, Amur Aleph, tells us, based on the verse of Hoshea, which says, Banim zarim lahem. Hashem says and complains, My children are given birth to Banim Zarim. What does Banim Zarim mean? Unrecognizable children. They're morally unrecognizable. They're engaged in assimilation and in intermarriage and... Pagan. They become, they become pagans. And as a result of that paganization of that family, and there's no recognition between grandfather and grandson, and that person has lost Israel, he's no longer a Jew, and if he wants to be Jewish, then what he wants to do? Convert. He can convert. One can be either biological Jewish and be part of the program, or ideologically Jewish and be part of the program. What ideas? It's the common spot. If a Jew wants to become part of the Jewish people, he can convert and become part Jewish people. So good. So we see in Bereshit, that those who engage in Siddhika Mishpat, justice, righteousness, they're in, they're chosen. Those who reject these values, they reject the values, then they are not chosen. Now, Abraham has two children. 
What are their names? Ishmael and Yitzhak. Are they both chosen? No. Ishmael is rejected and Yitzhak is chosen. Yitzhak has two children. What are their names? Yaakov and Isaac. And what happens? One is chosen and Isaac is rejected. And Yaakov has 12 children. And yet, of those 12 children, what we find is that ultimately, it's not the biological Bechor who is chosen, not in any of these cases, not Ishmael, not Esav, and not Reuven, but rather it's Yudah who is chosen. So we see over here that throughout Jewish history, there's been a process of selectivity. In that, it's a process wherein those Jews who have chosen to follow the pathway, and they be, remain part of the chosen people. Those Jews who have chosen to assimilate, they lost. Sadly for us, sadly that our nation is not bigger and stronger, but those Jews who have not followed this pathway of Siddiqah Mishpat, they've been lost to the Jewish people. So that's what we find. We find those who maintain a loyalty to the core values of Abraham Siddiqah Mishpat, then you are part of that chosen nation. And you're obligated to teach others those values of Siddiqah Mishpat. But if you don't maintain that loyalty, then you, in fact, lose that status. The book of Bereshit closes with Yosef. Why is Yosef so extraordinary? Because he's the one who's able to maintain the values, the loyalty to the values of Abraham Sikha Mishpat, even though he's living in an alien environment. He's living in a completely non-just and non-righteous society, as Egypt was, and despite the fact that he lived in that society, Yosef was able to maintain his integrity as a Jewish person. His closing words to his brothers speak volumes, and he tells them, even though we are all living in this pagan society, there's no respect for justice and righteousness, he tells them, I will pass from this world. Elohim shall take note of you. He shall lift you out of this land, to the land that was promised to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he makes them take an oath, as he took an oath, and said, when God takes note of you, bring up my bones with you. I don't want to be buried in this pagan unjust, non-righteous society. Rather, I have to be brought home and be buried in the land of Israel. What's interesting is that this is foreshadowed earlier on when Yosef calls Egypt the Empress of the Nile, the most powerful society that was known at that period of time, Eretz Onri. Eretz Onri, when his son Ephraim is born, he says, Kifrani Hashem Motiba Eretz Onri. This is a land of poverty. There's no justice, there's no righteousness, it's a land of poverty. And Yosef understood very well that Egypt could never be the promised land. It's only a brief interlude. It's an exile. We all have to go back to the promised land. And all we wish that the Jewish world would learn the lesson of Yosef today. Thank you all for coming.
Thank you all for coming. Arbit, Arbit will have Minyan, Arbit now in the Midrash. Please join us for Arbit. And please uh, make see you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank 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 He's doing the treatment. He's got a couple more treatments. Okay, good. Scans, probably scans. Okay, great. Okay. God willing. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you for coming. Good. God willing. Thank you. Good. Good to see you, Adam. What a joy. Good to see you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. What is this? Thank you for coming. <laughs> Going to read back, right. That's the recording item? Thank you. Let's make this Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Drive well. Drive carefully. Okay, thank you. Drive away. Drive well. Sorry? Slow recording. Oh, stop it then. Okay. Is this a weekly? Yeah, every week. For the last 28 years. Yeah, couples. Yes, yes, yes. 28 years. Come, come. Good to see you. Yeah, I don't know what. Tuesday night, yes. 8 o'clock, yes. Good to see you. Good. Thank you for coming. Ready? Good to see you. Good to see you. See you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Regards home. Regards home. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you for coming. God willing. Yes. Thank you. A few weeks. Four, five weeks. Good seeing you. Thank you. Good seeing you. Good. Good. I made my call. Thank you. I made my call. Oh, thanks. I made the call. You know what I'm talking about? We're on the same wavelength. Yes, I'm supposed to tonight. Thank you for coming. Good seeing you. Thank you for helping you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank, thanks. Uh, that was great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm depressed. Every week I'm here. Nobody's here. There's five people there. Good seeing you. Good seeing you. Good seeing you. Good. Thank you. That's Hashem. God willing. How are you guys doing? How's Jack doing? See him? No, he's in Israel now. Oh, Israel? Oh, good. Good, good, good. So my best. Well, my, my kids all came back from Israel. They all came back, yeah. Thank you. Right. Yeah, we did. I forgot we came out. We tried it. I'm going to make it about Shabbat, so I'll send it to you. Okay, good. Very good. Good. Good.